when people are going through this process of becoming parents and especially fathers, they're starting off, you know, they may have books, they may have, they may do stuff with the birthing coach and doulas and getting really involved in that. And I think that they're like, well, I'm, I'm going to pack this knapsack. You know, they create their like little to-go bag to go to the birth and things like that. I think in some ways we carry that mentality as fathers into every area. Like, do I have enough? I notice that a lot with my, my clients that are dads. They're asking like, do I have enough money? Do I have enough security? Do I have enough knowledge? Do I have enough this? Do I have enough that to begin this thing? And it's similar to like the basic therapeutic questions that often come up. I think that's similar to being in therapy and becoming a father, which is, am I enough? If we do a good job, not only is a person enough, but their doubt, the things that they came in with that they hate so much or that they're afraid to be, the problems that they're coming in with, we can reframe them as opportunities for curiosity. Welcome to another episode of the Poised Powerful Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Mahan. I coach movement, alignment, and the empowerment that comes from understanding how your body works. This podcast is all about helping regular people adapt to the physical and emotional challenges of new parenthood and hearing some good stories from people getting the crash course. I am here with Fabrice Lupin. And Fabrice, you do so many things that I'm going to have you read your own introduction. (laughs) Thank you. I feel often that I'm simultaneously doing a lot of things and never doing anything at all. I feel that. So I am a, I'm a predominantly, first and foremost, I would say that I am a clinical psychologist that is both professional and a personal role that I've started to kind of embody and take on. I also identify as a writer and poet. I am a first generation Haitian immigrant. So I'm the child of Haitian immigrants to this country. And I am a father. I would say that my professional experiences really started in severe mental illness. So I worked in community mental health and college counseling centers. I worked in private practice. I pretty much worked in a lot of different settings, minus incarcerated or jail kind of setting. With that, I've learned a lot about the way that we approach healthcare and health from these types of different settings. And I've always just been interested in what was missing from those settings. A lot of it for me, I think most directly was conversations on culture and community, the way that these bigger systems can impact the individual. So for a lot of therapeutic models that I grew up understanding, It was always just focused on individual problems. As somebody who was going through grad school, as a son of Haitian immigrants and identifies as Black, I found myself thinking like, not all of these things are an individual issue. Some of them are actually reflective of more social and societal concerns and pressures and issues of class, status, things like that. So in 2018, I left a group practice to create my own organization, which I call For Real Therapy. For Real was supposed to be an opportunity just by my myself at first to kind of interweave evidence-based practice with an emphasis towards radical change. So I wanted to do therapeutic interventions that could feel concise, supportive, but would also leave people something tangible, something real. I felt that a lot of people were looking at therapy in a very abstract and heady way versus more something to be embodied, practiced, and more vital. So then in 2019, at the very, very end, right before COVID, my spouse and creative business partner, Ryan Katz, found a dance studio that we decided to renovate. The vision of it was really to create a community space with individual therapy offices inside. So this way we could begin to introduce 
different therapists and different mental health issues in a way that the bar would be really low and very accessible for people. We did that. We opened it up in kind of like late fall of 2019 with this intention of doing all these types of like mind-body groups and just other things that would come up from the community. And it'd be very grassrootsy. And we had like beds instead of chairs and stuff. So people were supposed to sit all over each other and like breathe all over each other. And then this little thing called COVID happened. So we actually had to close the office. And now we're doing everything virtual, but we're, we're planning on some form of coming back and what that would look like. I've expanded to have staff members from all different walks of life, bringing all different types of perspective and culture and context. And I just hope to evolve the field of mental health as much as I can with my tiny human voice. Awesome. I'm thinking about what you said about radical change. So I'm definitely going to ask you more of that. And I'm really thinking about the space that you have a vision for. And I know sometimes when I've gone to therapy, there's this feeling in the waiting room where it's like, Nobody wants to look at each other. Yes, exactly. Everyone's hiding behind like their phone, their book, their magazine, their coffee. Everyone's staring at the floor. They didn't want to acknowledge that we're here in a space and time where in some ways, maybe we're all seeking the same thing. We're all asking the same question. That's what's so weird to be a therapist mm-hmm. or a psychologist, a mental health professional, is to be on the other side yes. of the conversations that the city is having, that the country is having. And you realize that it's not just this one person. It's everybody and yourself. And why are, why are we not bringing those conversations together? As I see American culture, we're all about the individual. And we have a lot of conversation about individual choice and individual freedom. Now, whether that's actually realizable for everybody is that's what we're going through right now. I would even argue just to what you said, individual economic choice, individual economic freedom, the ability to spend and capitalize where you want to. I don't know if people actually have individual choice or individual freedoms. But we can buy the car. You can buy whatever car you want, like as long as you have the money. That's the real American design. Yeah. This idea that, you know, we're all these separate individuals and just what's going on with me is just what's going on with me and my choices. It's just all about me and my individual. That's an illusion. And I think it actually burdens people. I think especially parents, It's really where we're seeing this conversation because there's such a lack of systemic support in this country, especially for people of color, any marginalized group. And it isolates people and their problems, but also makes them, I think, a little bit overly responsible for some things that perhaps they aren't. And that circles back and has a real effect on people's overall well-being. I love that that idea of being overly responsible. As a father and a parent and myself included in this, I'm carrying a lot of stress. I have to be the person that provides all things. If the school system in Chicago isn't showing up, then I got to figure out how to do it. If my spouse is busy working on a painting, then I have to like pick up the slack. My family is in Florida, right? So they're not easily accessible. I don't have the same kind of support systems that some people who have their parents locally have. During COVID, we didn't have our kids in any form of daycare and my daughter was doing remote learning. So they were just with us and on top of us for the entire year. Everything felt like it was on us. And then you look at it from like the kind of 
individualized lens, right? Like that kicks in when, especially when you're stressed, especially when you're undergoing things that are overwhelming. So then the individual kind of thought kicks in the pain thought. And it says, well, not only are we alone in this, but I'm alone in this and I'm responsible. I'm responsible for this. And you're right. That's, that's such a heavy burden to carry. I wish that people could feel more opportunity to relax into their roles, into their lives as something that could be creative, intuitive, and feeling. Yeah. There's so many things. It it seems like we have this lack of support, but then also there's so many ways people feel like judged or that they're not doing parenthood right. There's a lot of stereotypes that people are trying to work their way through. Where do you see that showing up, either for you or the people you work with? I would love to be able to speak for all parents. Sometimes I think it's important to highlight difference. Sometimes it's okay. Not everything has to be the same. So in this discussion, I want to contextualize it. I'm going to talk about things from a very cisgender, male identifying, and especially like a Black male identifying father perspective. So I can only speak from this place. I cannot necessarily speak for all the myriads of variations that exist. There are so many different things. I hope I can like touch on something that could be universal or at least creates curiosity in different types of perspectives and ways to approach. But I want to kind of give myself permission to just kind of go deep into those spaces with you so that I can pull out whatever form of like wisdom or experience. So I I think when you ask that question, what are the types of stereotypes? What are the types of structures that we grew up with? Well, I became a father at 25, turning 26. I was in the middle of grad school and it wasn't planned. It wasn't something that I had anticipated. It was actually my daughter's mother was someone I had just recently started dating and we had connected and bonded. And six months into our dating relationship, she learned that we were pregnant. At the time, I felt scared and I felt paralyzed with the sense of loneliness and isolation. I felt like I couldn't tell my parents, especially being a firstborn of Haitian immigrant parents coming from a very tight-knit family where I called my dad pretty much every other day, if not every day, while I lived in Chicago and they were in Florida. Suddenly I was quiet. (laughs) There was like radio silence because I found out this huge thing that was about to happen to me and I didn't know what other people were going to think. Because of that, I ran away. And I felt very, very avoidant. So I remember holding this thing in for about two or three weeks. And during that time, I feel like I remember walking around Chicago and just seeing everyone with their kids, right? Every version of a male were walking like with their child in hand. And then me trying to project some sort of like vision of myself in that body and just being like, I can't do this. I have no resources. I remember at the time I had $100 in my bank account. That, that's something I very vividly remember just saying, I can't be a father. I don't have enough money. How is that? That's just not a possible thing. I, they just, I don't have enough. I don't have health insurance even. I don't even remember the last time I've been to a doctor. And suddenly as a 26-year-old person, I'm going to doctor's appointments. I haven't been to the doctor at that point in years. Nothing was wrong with me. But here I am like attending you know, the first ultrasounds and trying to understand a lot about biology, not even about my own male physiological anatomy, but trying to understand someone else's. And so this was really, really terrifying and scary. I think the only thing that I had to go off of, I noticed even recently, is television and movies were the only things that had 
really educated me as to what the role of a father should be outside of my own parenting experiences. Most recently, I was watching the film Grown Ups with Adam Sandler and Chris Rock and a, a number of other people. That we were, I was in a weird, bored space, so this movie comes on and I just decided to watch it. It is not a very good film. And what I noticed is that, wow, there's all these stereotypes about men and what problems they're supposed to have in becoming fathers and older adults and aging. I found myself thinking, man, if this is it, if this was the only thing that I received in terms of any guidance on like what a dad should be is movies like grown-ups and comedies and knocked up the pursuit of happiness with Will Smith, right? Like these are so it's always just like a single father surviving alone, separated and cut off from everyone else. Or it's a dad that's overwhelmed, isolated, distanced living and existing in like kind of sexless, joyless, desireless landscapes of, of dissatisfaction and dissociation. It's not a very attractive place to be. Talking about stereotypes in TV, I'm curious sort of how you kind of navigated finding your own parent identity, father identity. I think that's such a big part of the transformation is this new identity. Every person has to navigate it themselves. So where did that take you next? The idea of like a parent identity and father identity. I think it starts and foremost with loss. I remember when I found out I was going to become a father, I was acutely aware of this idea of if anything were to happen to me, like let's say that I was be in the news or something like that, they wouldn't describe me as the son of Robert and Ketley Lubin. It would be father to, you know, or parent of. And that was kind of shocking to me. This huge role is changing all of a sudden. This role that I occupied mostly in my life has just been brother son. But now I'm adding this new thing called father. I think for any real parent, honestly, the transformation actually starts with kind of a form of loss without realizing it. I think that there's a lot of emphasis on like what you're about to gain and what's about to happen, which I think is lovely and powerful and is great. And I also feel that there's this other kind of space. You're losing something. You're giving up a, a particular identity that you used to have. You're giving up a particular level of comfort mm. with yourself. For me, the transformation was, I would say, marked with fear, uncertainty, loss. I do a, a father's group. One of the things I always ask my dads, especially when they're new to the group, I'll say, when was the moment that you realized you were going to become a father? When was the moment that you realized you were a father? For me, the moment that I realized I was going to become a dad was many, many weeks after learning my partner was pregnant. I was in the doctor's office and for the first time we were about to do the kind of the first sonogram and we were about to hear the heartbeat for the first time. And so I had been internalizing all this fear and guilt and shame and all this other stuff. I remember having this thought in my mind and it was, you have this moment where you're going to hear the heartbeat of your child for the very first time. Do you want to hear it? I remember this voice came in so clear and I said, yes. And the next second, there it is. It's not to say that I could control, I think what was about to happen, but I think it was the first moment that I had to, for myself, invite this new experience that was about to occur without fighting it, without resistance to surrender to it in some ways. And I did. And I'll never forget the next question I came up was, and I said aloud, I said, we'll get to show her the color green. <laughs> That's what the first thought I had. I was like, we'll get to teach her color.
lawyer. So we'll get to teach her, which is weird because I'm colorblind. So I have no idea why that. I was very excited to introduce a color to, to this new entity and be like, man, you're going to see grass. That's going to be wild. But for me, that was the first initial beginnings of being becoming a father. It started with that open invitation to myself to step into that space and kind of taking it without thinking about how scared I was anymore. That's such a deep moment that you shared with us, being able to ask yourself that question, do I want to hear it? And I know I felt full body reaction. That's like really a whole moment there. And I think it's interesting that word you use about inviting the experience in. And I'm interested in where these opportunities for invitation are and where those moments of resistance are. I don't know how we can look at them self-compassionately. There's something to be said about the way in which we argue and fight within ourselves. So people come into therapy often thinking like, well, I have this thing that I'm ashamed of. I have this this thing that has been causing me problems and issues. And it's awful. And I'm going to tell you this awful, awful thing. This is the most horrible, horrible thing. And you're going to judge me. You're going to hate me the way I hate myself and the way that other people hate me as well. What ends up happening is people tell me the way that they're afraid to be. If I'm fortunate and I'm in the right space and we can create the right conditions, I'm able to open up a door that says, you don't have to be afraid to be this way. What I'm more curious about is if you are this way, whatever that is, what do you need? And how can we start exploring that and giving that to you? So when people are going through this process of becoming parents and especially fathers, they're starting off, you know, they may have books, they may have, they may do stuff with the birthing coach and doulas and getting really involved in that. And I think that they're like, well, I'm, I'm going to pack this now. Sack. You know, they create their like little to-go bag to go to the birth and things like that. I think in some ways we carry that mentality as fathers into every area. Like, do I have enough? I notice that a lot with my my clients that are dads. They're asking like, do I have enough money? Do I have enough security? Do I have enough knowledge? Do I have enough this? Do I have enough that to begin this thing? And it's similar to like the basic therapeutic questions that often come up. I think that's similar to being in therapy and becoming a father, which is, am I enough? If we do a good job, not only is a person enough, but their doubt, the things that they came in with, that they hate so much or that they're afraid to be, the problems that they're coming in with, we can reframe them as opportunities for curiosity. People and humans and our experiences as parents, like our kids, they're not problems to be solved. They're opportunities for engagement and to be curious about ourselves and our world. Problems are reminders that we are not fixed, that we scatter, that we change, that we become different things at, at different times times. And as long as we have that variability in our lives, that means that we're breathing and we're embodied and we exist. I think it's a very interesting thing, what you're saying about curiosity and sort of that place within a process of change. Well, and again, we have such goals-driven <laughs> society. It's not surprising that we bring very no. high expectations, rigid expectations into parenting. The idea that to truly get to where we want to be, you're talking about moving from this place of judgment to curiosity. Yeah, the parent role, even thinking about this interview, found myself thinking about what is it that I mostly hear from the fathers that I speak of and what is it that I hear from myself often being a dad. And I will tell you, in my father's group, I always try to do kind of summary notes for myself after I meet with my dads just to reflect. And sometimes I'll even do write-ups, which I'll email to them so that we can understand what we talked about. So I'm going to say, if anyone is listening to this podcast at this moment and they're a dad, the most important thing I can tell you is write things down. Don't keep things internalized. Try your best to externalize and to see your experiences on paper. It really, 
really helps to guide your thoughts and to guide your values and to guide some of your intention and actions. But one of the things that I, I think I noticed in every single father's group is how do I deal with worry when it comes to my children? How do I deal with the fact that I worry that they're going to run across the street? I worry that they're going to touch the stove. I worry that they're going to hurt themselves. That is like the first and most consistent thing. And what's interesting about worry is it brings out all of this anger and frustration and tension. Men who would be described as gentle and compassionate and fun, they'll say, man, my child just says I'm angry all the time, <laughs> you know? And these men are in tears sometimes. And they're saying, I'm, and I'm not an angry guy. I'm just yelled at them because he was going to run off into the, the middle of the parking lot, get hit by a car. And I didn't, I, I saw it in my mind. I didn't know how to handle that feeling. So a lot of, of dads carry this worry and this tension around their worry. As a therapist and a father my Myself, I try not to go into the dichotomy or binary of like, this is good or this is bad, but instead, what is your worry trying to tell you, especially from like a valued place? So if you take anything you fear, you fear it because it's actually valuable to you. If I told you that something was going to happen to an abstract planet far away from you, you're, you're not going to have any connection with it. But if I say two doors down your neighbor's house that you see every day burned down, you're going to have this like incredible empathic kind of connection. So what we fear is actually access to what we care about. And so you kind of have to look at why am I so fearful of my kids hurting themselves? Because oh, I value their vitality. I value their livelihood. And so if we can open ourselves up to that curiosity around that tension, then maybe we can access another physical feeling, which is a physical feeling of presence, a physical feeling of joy, maybe even a physical feeling of, okay, yelling at my kid isn't going to be the thing that I really want to do because it's not the thing I want to convey. What I want to tell them is how important they are. To what I want to tell them is that I love them and we got to slow down. What I want to tell them is that daddy sees you and thinks that you're going to hurt yourself. Not actually that you did. Just the thought that you were about to fills dad with fear. But we don't language this way often with our kids. Or I never received that language when I was a kid because there's a lot of words and thoughts and emotions that are really hard for men in our culture, in our society, in our community to express. We don't, we don't receive much guidance on it. Prior to this interview, to prep for it a little bit, I decided to like listen to other different professional father people and what they talk about. And what, one of the things that they kept bringing up is like, well, we've got to look at things from like these multiple dimensions of like our partners, our, our spouses, our children, the grandmothers of this and the that. And I thought, wow, that's so surprising because our culture, especially around men, does not teach them to network in a community-centric way. It's interesting that you'll read these father books and they'll break it down into what's happening to you, what's happening to your wife, what's happening to the baby. It's happening to your mother. I have never been asked as a guy in America to think about all of those people. I do naturally. That's how I've always been. But it's not something that anybody was asking me to do. Most of the time as men, you're asked to think about yourself. What are you doing? Where are you going? How much money are you making? What's your job? You, are you taking care of everybody? These are the types of questions that we're often. So I always think of it as if 
we're not getting adequate language training from the beginning as to how to slowly and intentionally begin to open ourselves up to thinking about others. For a lot of men, when they're transitioning into these fatherhood things, and if you kind of even hear what I've been mentioning, even for me, there's these wounds that we start off with, whether it's, you know, an unanticipated pregnancy. You have a lot of men who I've worked with personally who have suffered miscarriages and other different things that now kind of like make them feel very, very frightened as to what's about to happen even if they're at the point of becoming parents, right? So they're coming into all this tension and fear. What if this person gets hurt? What if this happens? What if that happens? And so it's kind of trying to slow myself down and slow other dads down to begin to ask themselves, can we open up the language over here? I understand that you're worried, but is there something else that we could listen for? Is there other things that we could do that could ground us so that we can see other sides of this? There's a lot there. I think I'm going to have you talk a little bit more about ways in which I'd say in our society, expression of feelings among people who are male-identified is sort of limited. I'm also asking selfishly for myself because I'm raising a son. I'm raising a young boy who presents as white and he's going to move through the world. And I'm realizing that being able to express emotions Mm -hmm. constructively, see others' emotions empathetically, that's a really key piece of him being able to move in the world in a positive way. So I'm, I'm thinking of that. And I'm also thinking of everybody who comes to parenthood, he sort of gives you a, a chance to kind of reevaluate, okay, this is the way I was raised. A lot of things surface often around emotions and, and expression of emotions. What I think in listening to that, and once again, recently, I've been thinking about this idea of we're always trying to simplify or reduce. Simplification and reduction also means that you're going to be cutting off, you're going to be blocking off. So there's this wonderful Instagram human that does these great, what they refer to as like Sunday sermons. And in the middle of it, they said the phrase, they go, let me complicate things for a moment. And I was like, oh my God, that is it. That's what, that's me. That's what I want to do. That's what I want to show up as. I want to show up in a situation like, let me, let me complicate things for y'all. Wait. That's what a therapist is going to do. Okay. It's going to show up and complicate things. Not not solve my problems for me. Never solving. (laughs) It's not Dang it. Dang it. (laughs) Exactly. Right. So let me complicate things. When you bring in that thing, you're asking so many different questions because it's a complicated thing. How do we change our language with our children? How do we change our language with ourselves? There's a theme, which is that the thing that you think often is happening is just your first reaction. That's just the first thing. And it is not the last thing. And therefore, if it's not the last thing, that means there's more things that follow that first thing. So the first feeling of worry or the first feeling of panic, or even the first moment where your kid is not listening or not following through on something, there is an opportunity to pause and reflect and ask yourself, well, what comes after this? And I think if you look at it, even from a place of like real frustration, rage, anger, I think I even find myself like, I'm just like, oh, but my son's name is Milo and he's a very rambunctious, about to be three-year-old. And so I just, I'm just like, Milo, sit down. Like, will you just shit, just shit, man. Just what is going on? Right. And like, I'm just tense and my voice is just the worst crumpled garbage. And I'm just like hurling paper balls at him to get him to comply. And he's not listening at all. And then sometimes I'll take it to a 10, but then what's after that? Where do I go from there? After I've hit that level. Well, generally in real terms, when I hit that high, he's crying and he's upset. And now I'm on the floor with him explaining why daddy lost his mind. He doesn't understand because he's three. All he's received is just like a loud of shouts, exclamations, and a feeling of pressure, right? Intention. And then my beautiful spouse and partner will say something like, you know, honey, you don't have to yell. (laughs) 
and I'll and I'll I'll just look at her with like demon eyes. And I'm like, you don't you don't know what yelling is. You have no idea what yelling looks like. This isn't yelling. You're a therapist. You yell? Haven't you figured it all out? (laughs) (laughs) Being a therapist, I have nothing figured out. And I enjoy it so much that I love listening to other human beings who don't either. That's what being a therapist is too. No one has anything figured out. And kids make you feel feelings. And like those feelings can hit you in a in a surprising way. Yes, in a very intense way. So Milo's having his feelings and then I'm having my feelings. And then I'm exploding over here and I'm not sitting down and thinking to myself, well, what comes after this? And Milo's not going to do that because Milo's three. There is no after this. There's just literally right now. He wanted those cookies right now. There's no version of a reality where he waits for the cookies. As a parent, you have to start to practice, I think even just holding yourself in space and asking, well, what comes after this? So something I do with my dad's is kind of tangible and might be important is remembering one, that adulthood is performative. You are on stage. You are pretending to be an adult and what you call a parent. Actually, your kid is the most authentic thing that exists in the room. You're just trying to improv your way through the situation that your kid presents. Oh my gosh. I come from theater and there's an old saying, which is never share the stage with dogs or children. Oh my God. Wow. Because (laughs) the idea is that whatever the dog or the baby is going to do, they're going to be authentically living in the moment and they will show you up for the sham artist that you are. (laughs) I love that idea because I think on some level, there could be a breath of relief for all parents and especially fathers if, if they could just be like the sham father that you are. And that's okay because you're there. You're a father. You're actively attempting to do this role. And that is powerful. The role is powerful. So one of the things that I I think is important, reminding yourself that adulthood is performative. And there's another thing that comes up, which is like seeing and interpreting. So in a lot of different ways, I think as a parent, and I'm always thinking to myself, like things are happening so fast. My dads are like, this thing happened, then this thing happened, and like bombs and flashes are going off so quickly. How do you expect me and Fabrice to like ground myself in that moment and think about all these things that you're telling me to do? Yeah. Have you ever had your partner like go use the bathroom immediately just it's like things things happening with the dinner and the somebody makes a mess and somebody (laughs) and it's somebody's crying and it's just and then your partner gets back and you're just like, yeah. where are you? Ah! <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. It's all gone to hell. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so in those moments when things are happening so fast, what I've tried to do is to task myself, what is it that I'm seeing? What does my child see? If I'm yelling at my child, they're not going to know what I'm yelling about them. They're just going to see this angry, huge, hulking figure generally standing above them, just like moving and telling them things. They're not, they're not interpreting that, right? So one of the things I, I ask my dads to do and I ask myself to do is to just think for a moment, like, what is this person seeing? It doesn't maybe matter so much our interpretation. We get really, really caught up in thinking like, well, this is what I meant, or this is what I was trying to do. Or, this is what I wanted it to be. But I think it's sometimes if we could really just slow ourselves down and just start at our most basic perceptions, the things just available to us, which is our senses, our sense of taste, sound, smell, 
site. If I were to gut on that level, which is the level that children really are operating from, then your reaction might actually be a little bit different. If your kid sees you like getting angry and tensing, then what does that tell them about the situation? It tells them that there's something unsafe about it that is not good about this. But if they see you coming over, bending down, giving them eye contact, sometimes with Milo, I've rather than getting into this place of like yell matching with him, like yelling till he obeys. Sometimes I'll even like, Milo, do you want to hear a secret? And he doesn't know what secrets are, but he loves the idea of them. <laughs> and he'll suddenly get very quiet, come over and he'll put his ear to my chest. I'm like, I love you. I love you. And then in that moment, the situation has switched. So suddenly what he's seeing is not this like bulking, angry, like embodied thing, but he's actually seeing someone who's interacting with him, engaging with him, giving him space. So that's really something I think is important. Another thing that I try to do with my dads is there's a lot more power in looking at things from a place of gratitude versus apologizing. So things come up so quickly and we make mistakes and we're so ashamed of the mistakes we made that we don't really necessarily maybe lean into the idea that we could say thank you. We can say thank you to our spouses. For example, if I'm like using what my daughter refers to as my dad voice. So when I bust out dad voice in a particular thing, I think it's important sometimes not to just say like, sorry, I acted like a jerk, but to be like, hey, thank you for making space for me. I really was losing it. Thank you for being patient with me. Thank you for holding that space for me and not making me feel like I'm the worst parent in the world. That moment of gratitude can, I think, reinforce force the behaviors that we really want to see with parents that have older kids too. I think it's been important sometimes to revisit moments with my daughter, even who's 10 now and to say things like, Hey, I know that I lost my cool back there. I really want you to be aware of how much I appreciated that you didn't get upset with me, that you allowed me to get a little huffy. And I think I didn't show up as my best self, but I appreciate you for making that space. And I hope that I can do that for you. And in that way, I think we can move towards a place of keeping in mind that people relate differently um, to the things that we do. And if we apologize, sometimes we're apologizing for things that aren't even the things that maybe that person necessarily found wrong. But if we say thank you, it's actually more related and more honest about what we think we receive from another person. So it's more really grounded in my mind in vulnerability. Saying sorry is about you. Me saying thank you for making space for me is kind of this acknowledgement of this other person did something which I actually appreciated and it mattered. Wow. I think it's very interesting how being with kids presents us with this opportunity to do some relearning, but also how uncomfortable that that is. Your expression of gratitude, like it sort of struck me. Like I was like, ooh, oh, but that feels so vulnerable. And I feel kind of, ooh, a little tense and twitchy <laughs> just just from that touch of vulnerability. The vulnerability part is, is everything, right? Because to have a wound is to have a hole and to have an exposure. Mm -hmm. to something. Really to acknowledge the wound on some level. If you think about it, when you see your, your son or your, when I see Milo like hurt himself, it's that thing where you like watch him really take a tumble and then they like get up and then they start playing again. But it's not really until like they look down and they see that they're bleeding that they're like, oh, wow. Oh my God, what happened? Right? Like it's only sometimes during that moment that that occurs. So I think in some ways, like even from a therapeutic level, it's almost the same thing. But for a lot of people, they are dissociated or disconnected from their body are disconnected from the way that things are happening in their life. They don't feel the wound. Often people don't come into therapy because everything is going wrong. Often a lot of my clients are coming in because it's the first time that they ever had to feel. 
in fatherhood or just for other like life transitions? I would say like uh, in any kind of transition, right? Mm -hmm. Like when you're really going through the thing, you don't really have time to feel. So you're just running through into the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And so in some ways you're not feeling the wound. Mm -hmm. I was talking with a immigrant client of mine and he tells this great story about how he had asked his father when he came to this country well what did you feel when you came here and his dad just goes feel i didn't have time to feel i had to get a job i I think that that's such a great encapsulation i think of like how things can be sometimes it's like we don't even have time to feel we gotta go do the next thing right so often when you have fathers finally coming into session for therapy when you have other people coming into session for therapy it's often not because everything is going wrong in their lives it's actually the first time the things actually started going right and they're taking a breath maybe even exposing themselves to rest for the first time and then they look down at their bodies and they look down at their lives oh i'm really hurt really really hurt i didn't realize Mm -hmm. once you have that acknowledgement of that wound i think you get to this tingly feeling that we're calling vulnerability that there's something that opened up and the the thing about therapy is we're allowing a space for a person to heal. It's not to say that they will. It's not to say that healing looks the same. It's just in some ways it's similar to getting a scratch or other type of abrasion. Sometimes it heals and you don't see any scars. Sometimes you do. Sometimes the thing that you think would not leave a scar or have an issue actually like has significant damage and repercussions that small things even. So I'm not there to necessarily judge what that process of healing looks like. I'm just there to hopefully create the space for healing to happen. I think that this comes back to being a parent as well in that there are certain ingredients that I would say go into creating a healing space for parents and for fathers. I would say that you want to be consistent. You want to make sure that your words and your promises and the way that you show up, make it consistent, make it predictable, create something that your kids can rely on so that they know when you're coming in or when you're being gone. A lot of dads will come in and be like, well, I feel really terrible because I work all day. And then I come home at night and that's the only time I get to spend with my kids. As long as your kids know that that time is coming, that's it. That's it. As long as they can do that. Think about like how your worlds really just have one basic thing. We rely on the consistency of the sun. (laughs) One day that the sun doesn't show up, that's a major problem for everything, right? We rely that there will always be a tomorrow. And I think like that's just a human kind of thing. So as long as people are being consistent within their relationships, That's awesome. Another thing I think about is allowing for degrees of expression. I think it's important to remember that yourself and your children and all those around you, they need space to explore how they feel. And you have to allow those feelings to arise. Now, if you're yelling and you're shouting and you're trying to get someone to conform to you, you're not really allowing for degrees of expression. You're not letting someone explore stuff. And you're also like limiting yourself, actually. What you don't give to others, you don't give to really to yourselves. And that's like an important thing, I think, for a lot of people to realize. So on some level, as a dad, I have to kind of move into this place of, I'm here to make sure that my son or my daughter are able to explore themselves fully. And I'm just kind of there to stop at the point that their body or physical or mental integrity or spiritual integrity is about to get really, really hurt. You can do what you want. Like sometimes I let my kids run around wherever, as long as I'm certain that they're not going to hurt themselves or endanger someone else, then it's okay. Is it really that like big of a control thing? Because kids need to be able to express themselves and to practice and to understand that expression. So consistency, degrees of safety, degrees of expression, and then I get a sense of you are safe and safe meaning more that you have a place 
to be brave. You have a place to explore. You have a place to say something and know that this person isn't going to immediately freak out on you or anything else. As a father, my goal really is to create these places where my kids feel I'm going to wander around. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. But ultimately, this guy, this person in this room, he's not here to attack me. He's not here to tell me I'm wrong. He's not here to judge me. He's here to learn. He's here to be curious. Make sure that I'm safe so that I can learn and I can get more of the information because our kids are going somewhere that we will never go. They're going into the future. At some point, at some time, we will never know what happens to them. And therefore, a lot of the things that I think that we can do right now as parents is I look at it as like setting structure, allowing new and wonderful things to happen, things that I didn't plan. But if I can come in with a sense of safety, degrees of expression, and a sense of consistency, that's what you need to grow a garden, isn't it? Mm. So something can flourish. Yeah. I'm thinking actually of this book, uh, The Carpenter and the Gardener. Are you you familiar with it? Mm -mm. Well, it's sort of an idea of like, we don't construct our children. We construct the garden, the environment. So they're more like plants, right? And one plant needs sunshine, one needs shade, so on, so on, so on. Everybody's different and has different needs. Yeah. I talked to the person that owned my daughter's preschool and I asked her, she said she had worked with children for 20, 30 years, something like that. And I said, what have you learned? about people and and children, especially working for 20, 30 years. She goes, oh, it's simple. She goes, every personality, every single personality you could ever imagine exists. That simple. (laughs) (laughs) That was it. (laughs) It's that simple. And it was so mind blowing to me. I was like, oh, the jerk person. Oh yeah, that's here too. Kind people, that's there too. There's room and space in the world for them, right? So instead of like coming at it with like, what a jerk person, I always like kind of try to gently ask myself, like, what is it that I could learn from this person? What is it that I can absorb? And I'm sure something that's repeated constantly on any parenting podcast, in some ways, Mm -hmm. your children are teaching you to be a parent. You are not teaching them to be a child. Yeah. Part of why I want to have this conversation, because I think a lot of parenting podcasts are focused on like, what are we trying to make the child do? Or, or even provide for the child, you know, a certain kind of philosophy. I think I kind of wanted to put a little bit more of a lens on parent development rather than child development. That's predominantly my focus as well. In some ways, that's why I don't even work with children. Mm-hmm. I found myself being in situations of mental health where I, I was working with adolescents and kids. Really, to me, it was the parent that really needed the support and the help and the assistance. They needed that space. And the kids know that, actually. Kids know that you're tired. Kids know that you're exhausted. Something my daughter told me once that I will never forget most wise thing she's ever said to me, daddy, you don't have to yell at me because it doesn't work. And when she said that, I remember being like, oh, okay, I hear you. I need to find something else. I need to find some some other way to connect. Mm. That's the most important kind of a lesson I've absorbed in my lifetime is sometimes things don't work. Stop doing the things that don't work and start maybe thinking of the things that do. I wanted to share something because I I thought it was interesting. I was telling my wife that you had asked this last thing, like you said, oh, like where does poetry show up, right? In being a dad. So I have this book that I've been writing. I got it for Father's Day around the time that my son was born, what I call my dad journal. Like I said, I think it's really important, especially for men to realize that sometimes there aren't many resources and places to go and you may feel very disconnected. But one thing I think that you can always do is you can always sit down and you can write and you can write about born 
boring days. I've even written at three in the morning when I'm really, really angry because I'm up at three in the morning. I write like a letter to Milo with each kind of thing. So I, so basically for a couple of years, I've been writing and then whenever the moment struck me. So I'm just going to read just a little extra. The question becomes less about doing what you're good at and instead challenging yourself to meeting defeat, leaving an encounter truly changed and standing by the ruined embers of your ego, strange and new. Your mother fought with me until I learned happier songs. When I could look around me and see outside of myself, I could always hear as easily as the chords change in the song, but I couldn't see. Your mom taught me how to look, how to look at carpet, at color, at flowers, at a wall, at garbage. She searches for goodness and real purpose. She observes suffering and wishes to alleviate burdens. This is your mother. She is the kind of woman that is a template, a starting place for the world. Even after the fire and the destruction, we will always need someone like that. Someone who can't do everything and yet supports the environment in such a way that the everything can happen. Be her. Take a little from me. My ear for good songs, words of heart. Go in with a curious question, even as you state the answer. Stay stubborn in your commitment to the things that don't immediately produce results. This will help you take the long way. And there you shall come across all kinds of people. They'll teach you how to be multiple and varied. Learn from your sister. Take time to articulate your feelings, good or bad, with truth. Pay attention and be mindful of your gifts, both those within you and those given from outside. Make time to discover what makes you feel beautiful. Hear your uncle, my brother's music. Stay in pursuit of beautiful connection. Know yourself so that you'll never feel confused or lost. Do not lie to anyone about who you are. Laugh with the wisdom of your grandmother, the one that carries pain and tears and the way that she turns it to shimmering gold. The quiet of your grandfather, his voice that speaks all around with a firm belief in his family and a strength to provide. And remember your bubby, who everyone and thought of and thinks of as beautiful in her endless youthfulness. But most of all, my tiny small one, hold your smile and your daring as high as you can throw it. Let it get caught up by the wind and entangled up in the strings of the trees of existence and life. And right now, you laugh and smile more than anyone that I know. And last night, your mother said, he's still small. If only for a minute, stay small with your heart as big as possible. And that would be my advice to any father. Stay small with a big heart. Oh, that hit me. It, it makes me think of the beautiful qualities we see in our children. Yeah. You know, I look at my son and his openness and I'm like, oh, I, I want him to have this openness, these beautiful qualities that he has. I hope he still has them as a man. You know, obviously it's a more developmentally advanced level, but that those things don't shut down. Yeah. And I think as long as you continue that wish, um, you'll find creative and interesting and imaginative ways to provide it. So just keep that, keep that intention in your heart. Keep that question and that curiosity about it. That's all we can do. Well, thank you so much for sharing this time with me. There will be links yeah. to connect with Fabrice if you um, want to connect with him, pursue therapy, groups that For Real Therapy is running and stay in pursuit of beautiful connection. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Poised Powerful Parenting. I'd love it if you shared this episode with a friend who you think would benefit from it. If you'd like to know more about movement and mindfulness for new and expecting parents, head over to poisedpowerfulparented.com for support. I hope you find the support you need because you are growing and changing too.